Turn your Bible, if you will, if you're using the Pew Bible, to page 914. Uh, if you've brought your own or some sort of digital device by which you're going to look at the scriptures this morning, you'll find our passage being Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. We will read the entirety of Acts 7. I would encourage you to uh, not just uh, listen to me, but to look at the words on the page and sort of read them to yourself, if you will, uh, in your mind as I go along. It's a longer passage and there's a lot here, um, but I think it would be helpful for us to read the entirety of Stephen's speech here and understand what the word of God is telling us this morning. Acts chapter 7, here now the reading of God's word. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removing him from there unto this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they could not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, do you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they, when they dispossessed the land, the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth in him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
you graciously have held us fast. You have held your church fast. You have kept us. We see here, Father, the face of one who stood for you all the way to death. And yet the death of your saints, the death of those who stand for Christ is not the end of the Christian faith. It's actually fuel for it to grow. Father, we thank you for Christ who stood for us in our place, condemned as we, those in sin, were condemned. Took our sin that we might be able to stand and have life and be before you, our holy God, in your presence for all of eternity. Help us, Father, as we look now more deeply upon this passage. Teach us. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen. I was struck as I listened to the many of you singing the fourth verse of our final hymn this morning before the reading of scripture. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. I find it uh, immensely encouraging at times, even in our worship, to just pause and stop my singing for a moment, a bit selfish as it may, and listen to you sing the words of truth, in a sense, to me as we sing to one another. And we're reminded of uh, someone like Stephen, but just the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ, that we would have a group of people who would sing uh, of this, that uh, that Christ will, will keep us, that will never be forsaken, that our foundation is secure upon the rock of Jesus Christ. We sang about it in a number of ways this morning. Uh, this cornerstone, this solid ground in Christ alone. Uh, we can think of uh, the solid rock, which we sang last week. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The, the question really for, for any Christian as we advance ourselves uh, along the path of life is what is our foundation? Uh, to, to whom do we stand upon? Uh, and it is in the times of uh, pressure, if you will, whether pressure from without or from within, uh, temptation by the enemy, uh, that the foundation that you're standing upon is seen for what it actually is. Is it solid? Is it dense? Is it strong? Is it Christ? Or does it crumble? Well, we have our, for ourselves this morning a uh, the history of a man who is seen clearly to have his feet planted solidly upon Christ. And it is found to be strong. My argument this morning, I believe the text argues for us this morning this. The true Christian is enabled to stand boldly for Christ all the way to death. And I want to explain that more in depth toward the end of our time this morning of study. But for your notes, you might just jot that down. The true Christian is enabled to stand boldly for Christ all the way to death. The question is, what do we do with 61 verses before us this morning? And how do we divide this up? And let me just spend a few moments explaining this text. Uh, There are approximately 
There are 53 verses of our text, 53 out of the 61, that is Stephen speaking. So we have this entire uh, sermon, if you will, speech, if you like, of Stephen who is speaking. And who is he speaking to? Let me refer you in your Bible just to your left, maybe. It is in Acts chapter 6. Look at verse 11. Let's just be reminded it's been a bit of time since we were in Acts 6. But Acts 6, look at verse 11. Let me read it to you. Then they secretly instigated men. Well, who are they? They are some of those belonging to the synagogue of the freemen. That's up in verse 9 of Acts chapter 6. And there's a group of men who are opposing Stephen's uh, preaching, if you will. Full of grace and power is Stephen. He's doing great signs and wonders. And these men are against Stephen. They're disputing against him. And they bring up some people. They find some people. They're willing to pay off some people, if you will, to give a false report about what Stephen's actually saying. They secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Three words I want you to notice in there. Moses, the law, and the, and the temple or the place. So Stephen is going to give a defense Of his false accusations against him. Pertaining to those three things. Moses, the law, the temple. And we could say how it all connects to Jesus Christ. That's helpful for us. When we look at this long speech. Because this is is the. uh, Maybe the, the greatest Old Testament lesson you can find in the New Testament. Stephen takes us way back. Uh, This man's a student of history. As many of the Israelites were, many of the Jews were, takes us all the way back, really, uh, to, to Genesis, and he begins with Abraham, and he begins to build this case. And let me just say, he's gonna flow from Abraham to the patriarchs, uh, Isaac and Jacob, you see that in verse 8. Uh, he goes into Joseph, he goes into Moses, and if you're reading the speech at verse 22, There's a break. In fact, your Bible may have a paragraph break at verse 22. And there's a reason for that. You basically could say that verses 1 through 22 is in a positive light. It's in a positive tone. It is uh, depicting God's promises to his people and his faithfulness to fulfill them. He's showing how God dealt with Abraham and he faithfully worked this through. How he protected Joseph and faithfully worked this through. How he dealt with Moses and on and on and on. He's showing the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises to his people. Now at verse 23, there is a shift. And that shift runs all the way to verse 50. That shift is really then that God's messengers to his people have been opposed all along the way. That's where there's that shift from Moses, whom God is using to redeem his people, to now Moses being rejected by God's people. He talks about Moses for quite a bit of time and how all of these things work out all the way into the removal from Egypt out into the wilderness, how they turned away from Moses, how they took idols for themselves. 
He quotes for them in verse 42 from Amos chapter 5, verse 25 through 27. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the first, during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? What he's saying is you didn't bring to me offerings. You didn't bring to me right worship, whether actually the sacrificial system or the heart of worship. You brought all those things to false idols. That's what they were doing with raising up with Aaron this golden calf upon which they worshipped. And yet, Moses being a messenger of God, the tabernacle, God's presence within and amidst his people, being a messenger, if you will, of God, being a uh, an authentic, uh, that which is authenticating the message of Moses is God's presence with his people. All of these things are there, and yet they opposed him all along the way. Now, there is a key point in this second section of Stephen's defense, which is 23 through 50. That key point is verse 48. You should look at that. There's a sentence in English that begins with yet. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Okay, now we have to remember... What is Stephen falsely accused of? It's relating to the temple. This temple that is in Jerusalem. This area where Stephen is currently. And here he is bringing them all the way up in history to Solomon in the building of this temple. And then he drops the atom bomb on them, if you will. Verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Now that's very significant to what is happening here. We're going to see more clearly here in a moment what Stephen's doing in terms of all of this speech pointing to Christ. But he then quotes from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord in verse 49, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? It's also reflected in Psalm verse 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Excuse me. Verse 52. We're, we're up to verse, uh, excuse me, we're up to verse 50 in this speech. First section, positive tone. Second section, rejection of the messengers of God. And then there's the application, if you will, of Stephen's speech or sermon. And that begins in verse 51. And it isn't the uh, the, the kind-hearted, uh, soft-touch approach. Uh, he lays it on them. Uh, he's actually telling them, what you're falsely accusing me of, you're guilty of. You are, are, you are saying that I'm rejecting the law. You're saying that I'm rejecting Moses. You're saying that I'm rejecting the temple. What I'm saying is you're rejecting it as completed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You stiff-necked people, he says, uncircumcised in your heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Notice, we'll see here in a minute, he connects the messengers of God with the Holy Spirit. He sums up all of the way that God has been speaking to his people into speaking by or through the Holy Spirit. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Many would contribute that one that was killed before the coming of the righteous one to be Isaiah. 
Isaiah in prophesying in chapter 53 and in other places of the coming of the Christ who would be sacrificed, would be the righteous one, would it be Emmanuel, God with us. They killed him, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You could say that Stephen is basically telling these people the rejection and murder of Christ is in line with the rebellious ways of your heritage, if you will. Uh, You rejecting Christ is nothing new. It's been going on for centuries now, is what he's telling them. He's bringing all of their guilt to bear right before their eyes. And we'll see here in a moment, uh, it doesn't go well in terms of how they respond. The question I think we have to ask is, okay, what do we do for these 53 verses? Uh, What application can be made for us? What can we learn in 2019 from Stephen's speech here? And I want to give two, two points of application for you. And the first is this. We can learn of the importance of the authority of God. We can learn of the importance of the authority of God. Now, I don't know if you caught it when I was reading. But the amount of times that the word father is used in these 61 verses. I counted 18 times the word father is used. If you take uh, also the idea of father, you're well over 20. And the way that it is being used by Stephen is not just speaking about biological fatherhood. He's speaking about fathers as authoritative. He's speaking ultimately about God the father and his authority over his people. That's why he's going to go all the way to say, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That is, you are in rebellion against the messengers of God, which is actually rebellion against God. This is important for us to recognize. Uh, It's important for us to recognize the authority of God everywhere in creation. That he is over how the plants and the trees grow. That he has ordained authorities in our lives, which if we are to resist, ultimately we are resisting God. Now, we're not speaking about whether or not they're tyrannical authorities or not. We're not going into all of that at this point. We're just saying God has ordained authority within the church. He's ordained authority within the home. He's given us authority within our local community, mayors, etc. He's given us authority by way of policemen. He's given us authority in many, many, many different ways. And since Adam, every one of Adam's children, you and I, are born with a passive aggression, passive hatred, or even flamboyant hatred and aggression against the authority of God and the authorities that he has risen up for us. I mean, how many times do the lights flash behind us and we think, oh, Six miles over. That guy went by me at 10. You know, how often uh, we see this within the home, right? Children. Who teaches them to say no to dad and mom? It just happens. It's within our hearts. Who, who, Who teaches us to justify our sin and failures to those authorities that hold us accountable to those sins and failures? It's within our hearts. We're we're born as rebels against the authority of God. 
And so whether it is Holy Scripture as an authority, whether it is the preaching of the gospel as an authority, whether it is the, the uh, father in a home as an authority, we have to recognize that when we resist those authorities, we're resisting God. That's the point Stephen's making here. Verse uh, 1 through 3 of Romans 13. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Uh, we, we have to teach in our homes the authority of God. We have to teach that we will hate authority, and yet authority is uh, that which is good for us. That we're going to press against it, and yet it is to be submitted to. It's designed by God. And so when we, whether it's the discipline of our children or others disciplining us as adults and modeling for those around us, we have to help them understand that we're going to resist that authority. And yet, to resist is to resist God. To submit is to submit unto God. To submit unto God is to give glory to Him. Opportunity and possibility to advance the cause of Christ and how we deal with authority. But that's the first thing I want us to see in terms of how this speech can apply to us. The importance of the authority of God. The second one, if you will, is less practical and more spiritual. And that is this. Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the many ways God interacted with his people in the Old Testament. Now notice he's, obviously, it's very clear, he's bringing the Old Testament to bear here. Moses, Joseph, David, the prophets. There are many people that are described in Acts chapter 7. And you could refer to them as types of Jesus Christ. Or that they are within the shadow of Jesus Christ. Or that they reflect Jesus Christ. Describe it as you will, but they point us to look to not them, but to Jesus Christ. Case in point, we have Joseph, who God uses to redeem his people from Egypt. What has Christ done for us? Moses is that which brings about the law from God to his people. Christ is that which fulfills the law. Christ is that which helps us see more clearly the place and point of the law. And we could continue to go on. David, the king of Israel, pointing toward a king that was to still come. Christ is the fulfillment of all that which is seen and portrayed in the Old Testament. Think of the tabernacle. The, the place where God would go to dwell with his people. So why does Matthew say in chapter 1 verse 23, Emmanuel, God with us. We are not in a tabernacle this morning and we're not there because Christ has come. He is in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go to a building to worship him this morning as the Israelites did. We get the privilege of joining with one another, but we don't have to go to a place to find God. For the Christian, he's within us. Think of the Old Testament sacrificial lamb. Uh, We don't have an altar uh, that's got blood all over it this morning. Why? Because Christ was our spotless lamb. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. He was the perfect lamb. 
The sacrificial system was used to declare the sins of the people, to recognize the forgiveness of God upon sin, but Christ did it once and for all. We're no longer needing to go to that system. The perfect blood was spilt. And we could just keep going. Think of this one. Think of the many ways in the Old Testament God empowers barren women to give birth. It's across the New Testament. It's a theme of the New Testament. It culminates in Mary. What do we see in Christ? Well, Christ is the first out of the grave. He's the firstborn from the dead. And we could just continue to go along. The New Testament offers to us the same God of the Israelites and yet invites everyone, every tribe, tongue, and nation to enter into relationship with him through Christ. God offers to us both in the Old Testament and the New Testament to look to Christ. The Christian gets Christ and there's nothing else the Christian needs other than Jesus Christ. Him crucified, raised, and ascended. We get Everything in Christ. We don't have to fear death like Stephen is going to show us this morning. Because he who has Christ has Christ who has conquered death for him. And we can continue to go on and on and on. Christ does not dwell in buildings anymore. Like the those who were falsely accusing Stephen were holding to. Uh, Christ, you can't find Christ in, in religions of the world, in philosophies of the world. And yet people look for ways to get to God in all sorts of different places. And yet Christ dwells in the hearts of mankind through the Holy Spirit as he executes his reign in heaven. Brothers and sisters, opportunities abound to see and hear of Christ. God has uh, not just given us a, a few ways. We have the, the Bible in printed form at our fingertips this morning. <laughs> and technology, in its, in, 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 to, to its greatest plus, I mean, you can get it anywhere now. Um, you can even get it waterproof so that it doesn't crumble. I mean, you, you can find God's word is everywhere. Uh, we have the, the history of the church. 2,000 plus years by the time we get to where we are today uh, of, of authentic, never changing faith because God never changes. The perfect messenger, the Holy Spirit using Holy Scripture, the authenticity of Jesus Christ is clear in every place all around the globe. It's a question not of whether or not you will believe in the authenticity, authenticity of Christ. It's a question of faith. Will you accept him for what he has done for you? Or will you be like these here that oppose Stephen and reject who Christ is? If you reject Christ, you do not reject Christ because you don't believe in Christ. You reject Christ because you don't want to believe in Jesus Christ. That's a crucial difference there. He's offered clearly to you this morning. As the savior of mankind, the one who went to the cross, the one who shed his blood, the one who died, the one who rose again, the one who ascended. It's very clear. You can't find anything other than Jesus Christ that transcends millennium of truth. 
you don't want to believe, it's because you reject it. To reject Christ, well, Stephen's pretty clear. It's to reject God. To reject God is to be in condemnation for all of eternity. What's the response to Stephen's speech? That's the second point, if you will, of our time this morning. Stephen's death. We find this in verse 54 through the little bit we read in chapter 8. Let's look there. We'll remember, you may remember when we began our study in Acts. Acts chapter 22 verse 20 describes Stephen's death. And it describes him as being the first martyr. Martyr and the Greek uh, comes from the word, our, our witness in the English language comes from the Greek word martyr. Uh, to be a witness is to be a martyr in a sense. To be a, for Stephen to be a witness for Christ, he, he, he took the witness all the way unto death. He was a martyr, but he was a witness. Notice, who knows what happens between the, in the white space between verse 53 and 54. Maybe Stephen gets cut off. We have all that we need to know. But there is a reaction against the application of his speech. That these that are in opposition to him are ultimately in opposition to God because they have opposed Christ. That they are guilty of what they are presuming he to be guilty of falsely. And they react vehemently against him. Uh, TMJ is a well-known diagnosis amongst these men. They ground their teeth. Uh, Who knows what that looks like? I think you can get the picture. They're quite angry with Stephen. And there's this description of the two, Stephen and this group of people in opposition to him. One is just of entire rage, uncontrollable almost. And you have Stephen who is just standing in the lion's den, if you will. He's standing in the fiery furnace, if you will. Whatever you want to use, he's just standing in the line of fire. And he's standing meekly, humbly, but with great boldness. He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Behold, he said, and he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. This is the most graphic detail of anyone who dies for Christ in the book of Acts. Um, you, you see how the wording of Stephen's death ends. And when he had said this, he fell asleep as to whether or not uh, he actually fell asleep uh, the way we fall asleep at night. Or this is Luke, if you will, using by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a play on words that Paul would carry out to say that for the Christian to die is as if he, we just sleep. Who's to say? But it certainly points to the fact that death has lost its victory for the Christian. Death, where is your sting? It's gone. Uh, death is, is not something that for Stephen is an end, but is actually a beginning. I think it's important for us to recognize, brothers and sisters, that certainly we don't have this, uh, this type of opposition against us. 
We have brothers and sisters that do. Uh, we saw, uh, we've seen it in the news all week probably in Sri Lanka. Uh, those who looking to Christ on Easter Sunday morning uh, find themselves looking at the face of bombs, losing loved ones. We don't have uh, that type of stand. It's a different one in America. I'd say it's almost as deadly. It's one that's subtle. Uh, it's one that is a sneak attack in many, many ways. But we do have the opportunity every day to stand for Christ when tempted to reject, uh, either reject sin and trust Christ or to give in to sin. And, and I think that's something that we have to recognize. Yeah, we can stand like Stephen does every single day. We have that opportunity. Uh, you're going to be tempted in some way, shape or form this afternoon. Uh, the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God is within you, is going to... Um, Prick your soul as to whether or not that is something you should do or not do. And that's the opportunity. Will you stand for Christ there or will you will you bend? Certainly we understand that, that we are to stand for Christ also in the public uh, community or in the home. Uh, we don't do so uh, for any other reasons than because he stood for us. We stand for Christ because Christ stood on the cross and stands for us now. I mean, what, what is Stephen looking at? He sees Christ standing at the at the at the throne. Uh, it's it's something to note here. He doesn't see Christ sitting before the judgment seat. He doesn't see Christ. He sees Christ standing, advocating for those that are his own. You know what is what is the the what is the prosecution do? What does the defendant do? When he, when he goes and he's going to advocate for his client before the rule of law, he stands. He, he, he is there at that bench. And that is exactly what Christ is doing for us. Stephen does not see him seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He sees him standing at the right hand of the throne of God. So we stand as well when we have the opportunity each day for Christ. Why do we stand in love for Christ? Well, certainly because he first loved us. Why would we be willing to go all the way to death for Christ? Because he died so that we might live. Why would we confront sin as Stephen does here? Because he dealt with our sin. The Christian lives because of Christ. I think it's important for us to remember that the gospel particularly noted here that is encouraging Stephen and bringing comfort upon his death is the ascension and reign of Christ. Uh, That is that which is comforting him. That Christ is currently ruling and reigning. You who are railing against me and who are going to put me to death cannot thwart Christ's righteous hand and his perfect will. It's important for us to continue to study and recognize the gospel of Jesus Christ and not just his time on the cross or his resurrection, but even after that, his ascension and current reign now. That will bring us encouragement in whatever difficulties we may face. I said that the the argument of this text for us is that the true Christian is enabled to stand boldly for Christ all the way to death. And I want to close by just highlighting a few things in that. Why do I say the true Christian. Why don't I just say the Christian? Well, because there are two people 
if you will, two groups of people, one man in one group and a number in the other group, depicted in our text this morning, and both see themselves as religious. Both are in a place of worship. Both are ascribing to some sort of religiosity. One is based upon Christ. The other is just morality. The other has no ability to save them. The true Christian is enabled. The only way you might become a true Christian is through placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone to be that which is paid for your sins. You cannot place your faith in anything else. You cannot go to church enough. If you do not trust Christ as the Son of God to save you from your sin, then you are not a true Christian. The true Christian is enabled. What do I mean by that word enabled? Well, you see it here. Verse 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. That's why Stephen stood. Not because he was six foot five, 280, and was bigger than everybody else. It wasn't because he ate his Wheaties that morning. He was full of the Holy Spirit. That's what enables the Christian to stand boldly for Christ all the way to death. It's again, not us, but all of him. And notice, all the way to death. That's the difference for the Christian and the non-Christian. The true Christian does not fear death. And when they might for a moment, they look yet again to Christ and the resurrection. And they recognize that there is no fear in death. And if I'm to die being stoned, pummeled, until I perish, or if I'm to die by natural causes, sicknesses, there's no fear in death for the Christian. We don't have time this morning, but I would encourage you to crack open this passage Later this evening, maybe with your family or for your own soul, study more in depth what's taking place in verse 54 through 8.1. Study the similarities between a disciple of Christ and Christ. Christ, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen, Lord Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. And on and on. For those in Christ, we are enabled to stand boldly for him all the way to death. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity this this morning that we've had to look in your word. It's clear to us from you, a holy God, that you have sent Christ And you, by your grace, have saved us. And in that saving, you have enabled us. You provided for us the Holy Spirit that supernaturally infuses us with the ability to do things that our human nature doesn't want to do, doesn't delight to do, doesn't choose to do. And yet for those in Christ, we actually want to do now. To stand when others fall away. To 
declare when others want to be quiet. To show our allegiance to you when others want to show allegiance to false gods, idols. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the example of Stephen. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us as a church. That we would be bold. uh, That we would not shirk from declaring Christ. Father, we would recognize more clearly the glory of what it means to be saved. uh, The only hope that is found in Jesus Christ and we would be willing to, to speak about that with others in our lives even this week. Give us grace to do this for your glory. Father, we pray that you would protect our church. uh, That in times of prosperity even, in the sense that we're not physically persecuted, that you would protect us from physical persecution, but you would protect us as well from, from being lazy. That there would not have to be physical persecution to... To cause us to stand boldly, but we would use the opportunity now to press forward the gospel, the kingdom of Christ. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we've had to study your word as we would close in song. May you grant us strength for this coming week. In the precious and holy name of Christ we pray. Amen.